Good morning, soldiers of Christ. It's good to be with you again and uh, to have a time together to open God's word. Let's pray as we uh, prepare to open the word. Father, it's amazing to us that you are the mighty, sovereign God of the universe. Uh, you are the God who calls the stars by name and who has set the foundations of the earth and formed the mountains and everything that lives on the earth. And yet, Lord, you have uh, stooped to us in our weakness, in your son, Jesus Christ, and come to earth in the flesh to rescue us, uh, to teach us, uh, to bring us back into right relationship with you. It is amazing to consider this, especially as we consider ourselves and our sinfulness and our frailty. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. So we thank you, Lord, for your word now and uh, for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed us to ourselves and our own hearts. Uh, we thank you for all the lengths, the extravagant lengths that you have gone to uh, to be in relationship with us. And Lord, now as we open your word, as we listen to uh, a conversation between Jesus and some Jewish leaders, uh, we pray uh, that you would help us, that you would bless us in your word, uh, that you would uh, bring us to uh, new understanding of you, understanding of ourselves, uh, and of our desperate need for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, this morning we are parachuting in <clears throat> right into the middle of a rather uh, spirited conversation that Jesus is having with some Jewish leaders. And this is John chapter 8 that we're, that we're in this morning. Now, just so that we're uh, briefed a little bit concerning the dialogue that is happening, uh, that has happened, up to the point of this conversation that we're going to parachute into, Jesus has just freshly here, he's raised a question about the uh, paternity of these Jewish leaders, who in fact was their father. Specifically, Jesus has wondered aloud here in the passage whether these leaders were in fact the spiritual children of Abraham, and Jesus has further drawn a question mark around the claim, their claim, that they were children of the Father in heaven. In fact, what Jesus does in verse 44 of John 8 is he declares that these Jewish leaders have the devil as their father. And in verse 47, he says to them that they do not belong to God. As I said, this is a rather spirited conversation that's happening here. It's not sort of a mundane conversation about the weather. So we're jumping in here to listen in on the conver conversation, and we begin this morning at verse 48. So now it's the Jewish leader's uh, turn to speak in this conversation, and here they fire this volley at Jesus. They say, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, both of these labels here, Samaritan and having a demon, these are meant to insult or to smear Jesus. 
It's well documented in this time when this conversation was happening in the first century, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. For one thing, Jews and Samaritans had conflicting claims about the true uh, geographical center of worship. Where was it? They both claimed different things. And in the early part of the first century, in the years just prior to this conversation that they're having here with Jesus, um, some Samaritans had covertly entered the Jerusalem temple and they had desecrated it. They had defiled it. This happened in the early part of the first century. They, what they had done is they'd come into the Jerusalem temple and they had spread human bones in the porticos of the temple and in the sanctuary itself. And of course, this only exacerbated, made worse, the antagonism that already existed between Jews and Samaritans. In the four gospel accounts that we have in our Bibles, you can see clear evidence, in fact, of this animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans. For example, John 4, 9, we have the statement there, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So that statement is evidence, isn't it, of the fracture that existed between these two groups. We also may remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, uh, there was a Samaritan village that had rejected Jesus. And James and John there, they were only too happy to resort to extreme measures and call fire down from heaven in order to burn the village up, the, one, the Samaritan village that had rejected Jesus. So it shows us again, Jews and Samaritans were not on the friendliest of terms with one another during this period. And of course, this makes the, the parable of the Good Samaritan very radical, doesn't it? Very meaningful. Uh, as Jesus was speaking that parable into Jewish ears. It also makes his very kind treatment of the Samaritan woman at the well uh, amazing as well. And it, and it makes his command in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, his command to evangelize Samaritans uh, very significant. Again, Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with one another. They weren't on good terms. But the point for us as we read this verse, John 8, 48, is that when the Jewish leaders call Jesus a Samaritan, they mean this as a very bitter insult toward him. They are casting aspersions on Jesus here. And they take a further jab at him by saying, not only are you likely a Samaritan, it's also likely that you have a demon now, in all likelihood, what they mean here is that because Jesus is doing all of these miracles, he must have a demon under his control. The demon is the power that is helping him do all of this magic. That's kind of what they're implying here. As I said, this is a very spirited conversation that's happening here. Well, let's go to verse 49. Now Jesus responds to the first claim 
that he's a Samaritan, Jesus doesn't even dignify it with an answer. But to the second claim that he has a demon, Jesus says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now notice that second phrase in the verse, I honor my father. In the very next verse of our passage, Jesus is going to talk there about the converse also being true. He will say that the father seeks the glory of the son. And then down in verse 54, Jesus will say again that the father glorifies the son. So the son honors the father here in verse 49, and the father glorifies the son in verse 50, and then again in verse 54. When Jesus says to these Jewish leaders at the end of the verse here, you dishonor me, the implication in the context of the passage, the implication is that in dishonoring Jesus, what they're doing as they cast these aspersions on him, as they lie about who he is, what they're doing in dishonoring him is that at the same time they are casting aspersions on the father and they are dishonoring the, fa the father also because again, the father seeks the honor and the glory of the son. So the implication here is that the father and the son are a package deal, so to speak. You bring dishonor to the father if you disown or if you reject Jesus, his son. And earlier in this very same gospel, according to John, Jesus has already said, he said very plainly and very clearly, John 5, 23, he said, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. To dishonor Jesus Christ is to dishonor God the Father. Well, after saying to these Jewish leaders that they dishonor him, Jesus continues in verse 50, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And then verse 51, here is where Jesus says something that is truly staggering in every way. Listen well, believer, to what Jesus says here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, listen to Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Abraham, the great father of the Jewish faith, never made any claim that was remotely like this claim that Jesus makes here. And neither did the great Moses make a claim like this, or Isaac, or Jacob, or David, or any of the prophets. None of them made a claim like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus, if anyone keeps my word, he, she will never 
see death. If you keep the word of Jesus Christ, if you walk in obedience to his commands, you will never see death. This is about the boldest claim that anybody could ever make. If you keep the word of Jesus, you will never experience the very thing that has haunted human beings since Genesis chapter 3. When you close your eyes for the very last time, what will happen, follower of Jesus, is that you will pass instantaneously, instantaneously you'll pass from this life to eternal life with Jesus without experiencing that thing that we fear most, which is the experience of death. Because of the Jesus who grips onto you, because of the Jesus who holds you fast, your physical death will not extinguish your life, if we can put it like that. Or using the words of our Lord himself in John 11, though you die, yet shall you live. Though you die, yet shall you live. Isn't this a blessed, fantastic, juicy, glorious promise. And I pray that each of us would receive this from the word of God, believe it and trust it. If, any, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is an amazing statement that Jesus gives here. Well, friends, these words of Jesus here in verse 51, they prove to be simply too much uh, for the Jewish leaders. In verse 52, they say to Jesus, Aha! Now we know that you have a demon. You just proved it to us. They say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Now lurking in the background of their mention of Abraham and the prophets here is their uh, resolute belief that Abraham and the prophets are the pinnacle. They are the greatest of all who, who have ever lived under God. Abraham and the prophets are the greatest. No one can be greater. Our great Abraham died, as did all of our great prophets die, including the greatest prof prophet who was Moses. Yet you say... Jesus, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Great Abraham could not preserve himself, could not preserve others from dying. Neither could great Moses do that or any of the other great prophets of Israel. Who do you think you are, young man from Nazareth, carpenter's son? 
Who do you think you are? Who are you to say that your word will keep people from death? Verses 54 and 55. Jesus could have said here, well, who do I think I am? Well, in fact, my perception of myself is that I am greater than Abraham and the prophets. Jesus could have said that, but he doesn't say that. Instead, he says here, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God, but you have not known him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Well, we said this was a very uh, lively and spirited conversation in this passage, and these verses certainly don't disappoint. Here Jesus, notice, he makes two claims, two claims about his conversation partners, claims that no doubt would very much sting them. First, Jesus says to them, as they're standing there talking, he says to them that they have not known the Father in heaven. And second, he says that they are liars. Why? Because they claim that they do know the Father in heaven, when in actual fact, Jesus says, you don't know the Father. And in the midst of all this, Jesus asserts in these verses, he asserts twice that as for him, he knows the Father. Let's go to verse 56. Jesus has already said in our passage, he's already said something absolutely staggering, hasn't he, in verse 51, about keeping his word, never seeing death. Now, here in verse 56, he makes another astonishing claim. Jesus now says to these Jewish leaders, listen to this, your father Abraham, you remember your father Abraham, great father Abraham, father of the Jewish faith, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, says Jesus. He saw it, he saw my day, and was glad. Let's listen to that again. Jesus says to these Jewish leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jewish leaders that Jesus is talking to here have been very disparaging toward Jesus. They've labeled him as a Samaritan who has a demon. They've essentially mocked Jesus here because Jesus has implied that he is greater than Abraham and the prophets. So these leaders in our passage have tried very hard to diminish Jesus as much as they can. And now Jesus makes this claim right in front of them as he's standing there. He makes this claim that their father Abraham who lived thousands of years prior, 
He makes this claim that in Abraham's lifetime, Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. And he saw that day of Jesus and he was glad. Why aren't these Jewish leaders rejoicing over Jesus when Abraham, their father, had rejoiced over Jesus in his day thousands of years ago? Why are these leaders disparaging Jesus as they are when their father Abraham saw the day of Jesus and was glad? This is a remarkable claim that Jesus makes in this verse. It's a remarkable claim that Jesus makes about his stature. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham had been looking. He had been looking for the day of this very person who's in this conversation right now, this very person from Nazareth. Abraham had been looking for the day of this person and he rejoiced when he saw it. Well, let's reflect back on the life of Abraham just for a minute. On the life events of Abraham. And we're asking the question, when precisely in his lifetime did Abraham see the day of Jesus, which was still thousands of years away from his time period. Did Abraham perhaps, perhaps Abraham caught vision of Jesus, the day of Jesus in the moment when Isaac was finally born? Did Abraham look at his infant son Isaac in that moment and have a vision of somebody in Isaac's lineage who would come along and bless all the nations of the earth as had been promised to Abraham. Is that why Abraham laughed, was glad in that moment? Maybe, maybe that's when Abraham saw the day of Jesus and was glad, or Maybe Abraham saw the day of Jesus when Abraham was by the trees of Mamre, when he'd had that very profound experience with the three mysterious strangers. Or maybe Abraham was given a vision of the day of Jesus in Genesis chapter 15 when he was in a deep sleep uh, and that deep sleep had a been accompanied by the covenant-making ceremony. Is that when Abraham saw the day of Jesus and was glad? Or perhaps it was in the moment when the ram in the thicket appeared in order to take the place of Abraham's son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Was it there that Abraham had a clear vision of a coming substitute that God would provide and send, a substitute who would be slain in the place of others. Is that when Abraham saw the day of Jesus and was glad? Or was it in all of those times together, and perhaps at other times as well, when Abraham saw the day of Jesus and was glad? We're not sure precisely when or how this happened, but friends, we take Jesus at his word here and we believe him 
Abraham, living thousands of years prior to Jesus, had seen the day of Jesus in the future, and it had made Abraham glad. In the words of Andreas Kostenberger, quote, Abraham did indeed understand, however imperfectly, that the covenant promise that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that this involved God's future provision of a redeemer. Close quote. One more time, Kostenberger says, Abraham did indeed understand, however imperfectly, that the covenant promise that in him all of the nations of the earth would be blessed, that this involved God's future provision of a redeemer. Well, when Jesus says this to the leaders in our conversation, they reply in verse 57, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? In other words, they ask Jesus here, and I think this was asked with a rather sour tone. They're asking him, are you saying, Jesus, that you were in some sort of position to observe Abraham and to know his inner thoughts and his hopes? Abraham lived millennia ago. Jesus, and you're standing in front of us here right now, and you're under the age of 50. Can you help us understand, Jesus, exactly what it is you're talking about? How can you claim to know what our ancestor Abraham saw in his day? Verse 58, our second to last verse this morning, and really, this is the climactic verse of this entire passage. This is the highest peak of the passage. Jesus says to them, listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, to borrow the imagery that John Calvin once used, on a clear night, if you're outside in the country, you can see a host of stars up in the sky. But when morning comes and the sun comes up and the light, the blazing brightness of the sun, it effectively causes all those stars to disappear from vision, right? It's pretty common experience. The sun with its brightness during the day is the only star that is visible. In our passage this morning, the Jewish leaders have tried very hard to maintain their position that obviously, at least to them, obviously Abraham and the prophets are far greater than this upstart Jesus is. But now in our climactic verse, in verse 58, Jesus declares that if Abraham and the prophets are like the stars in the sky at night, he is like the sun shining so brightly that the stars disappear from sight. In the words of John Calvin, quote, just as the brightness of the sun obscures all the stars, 
so all the glory that is to be found in the saints, including the glory of Abraham and the glory of the prophets, all the glory that is to be found in the saints must fade away before the immeasurable brightness of Christ. Close quote. Again, what Jesus says here is, before Abraham was, I am. We talked last Sunday about Jesus using this phrase, I am, throughout the Gospel of John, in fact. And here in John 8, 58, Jesus uses it, we need to understand, he uses it in an absolute sense, an absolute sense. In other words, here, he doesn't connect I am with other words like I am the light of the world or I am the bread of life. Here he just says, before Abraham was, I am. This, friends, is an unequivocal, clear identification that Jesus is making between himself and the I am of Exodus 3, verse 14. The God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. The God who rescued his people from uh, their Egyptian bondage. The God who split the Red Sea. In our passage today, Jesus has already described, hasn't he? He's already described the kind of rescuing power that he exercises. The power to free people from the experience of death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus is the rescuing I am of Exodus 3 and of Isaiah 41 through 43, where we have I am cropping up a bunch of times. As we've been saying so much lately, Jesus is God come in the flesh. He is Yahweh in the flesh come to work the new Exodus that had been prophesied all through the prophets. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus easily could have said here, listen, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. He could have said that. In other words, Jesus could have said, even before Abraham was ever born into the world, I was already in existence. And of course, for Jesus to say, I was here before Abraham was, I was, this would be totally and utterly true as a statement. But Jesus says more than that here. He doesn't say, I was before Abraham was born. He says rather, I am. And he says, I am, why? Because he wants us to know that he is the eternal Lord of Exodus. That's who Jesus is. That's who he is in your life today. He is the eternal Lord of Exodus. That He wants us to know that he is the rescuing God of Exodus who has come now in the flesh to rescue sinners from their slavery and to restore his entire creation. He wants us to understand 
in using this terminology, I am, he wants us to understand that he himself is the place of divine self-revelation to the world. Who is this Jesus with whom we have to do? He is the great I am. Jesus is God over all, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 9.5. Jesus is the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2.9. He is I am. Now, according to Old Testament law, if you had a person who blasphemed the name of God, if you had a person, for example, who claimed deity for himself, who claimed to be God, that person, according to Old Testament law, was to be stoned to death. The Jewish leaders in our passage, they listened to Jesus make this startling claim to be the I am of Exodus chapter 3. And as they listen to Jesus, they understand instantly that this human being in front of, of them is making a claim to be God. And so he must be stoned to death. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. That's why they want to stone him to death here, because he's making a claim to be God. But notice Jesus. The text says he hid himself and, notice very carefully, he went out of the temple just as the glory of God had departed from the temple in the book of Ezekiel, so the glory of God, who is Jesus Christ, leaves the physical temple here. And as the glory of God and the person of Christ departs from the Jerusalem temple, it is almost a portent of judgment on the people. They failed to recognize the true identity of the one before them. They did not buy his self-identification as I am. They did not welcome God himself in the midst of their temple. They wanted to stone him to death. And so the glory departs. Jesus leaves. As Augustine once said, Jesus flees from the actual stones that they were preparing to throw at him, but he also flees from their stony hearts. Now friends, over these past few weeks, what we've been doing really is we've been centering on the question of Jesus' identity. Next week will be the final uh, sermon in this little mini-series, and we've asked our brother Martin uh, to bring that message for us. So I want to ask you to be praying for Martin uh, this week as he prepares. But in this little mini-series, the basic question has been ringing out, who is Jesus, in fact? 
Who is he? What is his identity? So we've gone to a few passages where his true identity shines forth. John 6, he's the new Moses, but he's far greater than Moses. John 1, he's the only ladder from heaven to earth. And now this morning, Jesus is the I am of Exodus chapter 3 who has come in the flesh. I think it's imperative for us from time to time to refocus our hearts and minds on the question of the identity of Jesus Christ, to get clarity on his identity as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. Why? Because it's so easy for us, listen, to start drifting toward unbiblical, sub-biblical, flabby, even false notions of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. I want you to check yourself this morning, and I will do the same as we all stand under the word of God. Who is Jesus in your life? Who is he in my life? How do you perceive Jesus? How do I perceive Jesus? What is his identity? What has he come to do, in fact? How do you and I take him? How do we approach him? Do we revere Jesus? Do we revere him as the high, mighty, eternal, uh, lion-like, rescuing, redeeming I am who is revealed in our passage, or, and I want you to ask yourself this question, are some of us right now bowing before a lesser Jesus, a pseudo-Jesus, or even a false Jesus who really is nothing more than an extension of our own desires? I think that in the contemporary North American church these days, there's almost a default toward a Jesus who caters to our self-improvement. The idea in this conception is that the sole purpose of Jesus is to help me get along better in daily life. To give me directions so that I can reach my best life now so that I can reach all the goals that I have set for myself in my life movie. In this unfortunately popular notion, we have a Jesus who makes very few, if any, demands on us. He's just there to help me form better habits, make better daily decisions, Uh, have a better family, improve my marriage, become a generally happier person. But I want you to listen. When we are confronted, as we come under the authority of the word of God, when we are confronted by the revelation of Jesus Christ that is given to us in the scriptures, when we prayerfully apprehend the true and actual Jesus, as he's revealed to us in the Bible, when we come into contact with the actual risen Jesus, 
the person we're confronted with is a completely different Jesus than the one that I just finished describing. The Jesus of Scripture, who is the actual Jesus, comes to do what? To kill our ego and to raise us from the ashes, to raise us from our position of being deceased in trespasses and sins. The Jesus of Scripture comes to reorient, completely reorient, what we thought we needed and show us what our real needs are. The real Jesus comes to cut off, to cut off our endless preoccupation with ourselves and locate our identity in him. When you draw close to this Jesus, the true Jesus who is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, your, listen, your utter helplessness, your utter helplessness as you stand before God, it's going to emerge pretty quickly when you come into contact with the actual, true, real Jesus. Your falling short of his glory comes into view and he shows you how desperately you need him and his work on the cross if you would be saved from God's righteous wrath that is coming on the world. Following the true Jesus is not ultimately about what we achieve, but about what he has achieved for us. The Jesus that we have in the Bible displaces us. I need to be displaced. He displaces us from being the center of all things like we think we are. And he shows us that it's him it's him who occupies the eternal central position of the entire universe. Following Christ is not about, it's not about having him used as a prop in my life movie. It's about seeing him as the star of the show and taking our part as bit players in his story to the praise of his glory. We are not the news. He is the news. All glory to the crucified and risen King Jesus. I pray that somebody watching today would turn away from the false Christ that maybe you have fabricated for yourself, if indeed you have done that that you would turn away from a false Christ, a pseudo-Christ, to the actual living I am, the Jesus who is revealed in our passage and who is revealed in the rest of the Bible. He is the I am. He is the incarnate, crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, and soon coming King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the savior of the ungodly. He is the one who died for his enemies. He is the only one who can free us from our helpless condition as sinners who stand before a holy God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word. We thank you for revealing yourself, revealing your son to us in the pages of scripture. Lord, forgive us 
for our idolatry. Forgive us for our tendency as fallen human beings to run from Jesus, to search for um, a small g God uh, that really is just a reflection of our own personality. We pray, dear God, that you would renew our minds in the Christ that you have revealed in Scripture, in the, in the living Christ, that we would renew our minds in him, come increasingly to know him, uh, be humbled by his presence, be encouraged by his presence. Lord God, thank you for your salvation plan and for Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.